<laughs> it is, that's it. Hello. Hi. Always start with a moment of vulnerability. So I had this lovely Fitzroy moment where on Thursday night, how on earth do you get out of this, please? Um, there. Okay, we're ready to go. I had this lovely Fitzroy moment where on Thursday night I was driving past the church with Neil Glover, who some of you will remember, who worked here years ago. And for those of you who are new, he's the guy in the front with the big cheesy smile on the photograph. And there was this a moment of epiphany where we suddenly thought, I suddenly thought, this is why Steve's losing the weight. Because what's going to happen is they're thinking of air, this is about airbrushing him up so they can Photoshop him into the photo at the front. <laughs> it felt perfect. So for me, it's kind of like a coming home. It's just seeing so many people who have meant so much to me and whose lives have been shaped and who in turn have shaped me by living out this passage. So it's wonderful for me to be here. And it's also wonderful for me to be here on behalf of Tearfront. Over the last 20 years, I was looking on our database. This is a congregation that's raised 75,000 pounds for our work. And you'll hear me say later on, but because we work through local churches and because we enable folk to use their own resources, we calculate that it costs about 14 pounds to take people through a simple program which will allow them to work their way out of poverty. So that means that your congregation, the back of an envelope calculation, have helped us to, to lift over 5,000 people out of poverty. And so I want to start by naming the fact that this is a congregation that's already living out this journey and this call to Isaiah 58. I want to start very quickly by just kind of highlighting to you the three pivot points that I believe the film tells, and then I want to go on to talk about the passage. I think there's three crucial moments in this film, an emotional moment, an inspiring moment, and a moment of challenge. The emotional moment, oh, is the story of this, of an Indian quarry worker who's trying to pay off a debt of $600. In all likelihood, he won't be able to pay it off. And there's this moment where his children are interviewed and his oldest son, who's this lovely smiling face, says, I don't have any dreams because there's no point dreaming. And I guess that is the story of the billion people who live in extreme poverty day to day. So there's an emotional heart to the film. There's an inspirational moment in the film where the film shares this amazing statistic that over the last 30 years, extreme poverty has declined, for, or the number of people living in extreme poverty has declined from 52% of the world's population to 26, partly fueled by economic growth and partly fueled by really brilliant development. It's an amazing story of change. In fact, an eminent report has said it will cost 73 billion pounds to end extreme poverty in our lifetime. Now that sounds like a big amount of money, but the film says that US Christians own $2.5 trillion of resource. They and us between us could end poverty 34, extreme poverty 34 times over. There is more than enough resource that has been given to us in the church to change this. And that is the place that takes us to the kind of challenge of the film. Because the challenge of the film says 
that we are called to align our heart with God, to feel what he feels, and to use our resources to advance his purposes. And I guess that is the story of Isaiah 58. And that is the story that I want to look at. So could I invite you to open your pew Bibles, or at least look at the passage as uh, Jonathan has read it. Brian, is the PowerPoint, or Alison, is the PowerPoint not working? We'll, we'll run without it. We'll run without it. So what I want to say this morning is that the passage I believe, or what I'm going to suggest, is the passage, passage I think is chunked in three ways. It's chunked, firstly, it's about the disconnection of God's people from him and from others. It's then the story of connection with God and with others. And it's a story of transformation. And as, you, as I talk, please feel free to look along. So the story of disconnection. Verse 1 to 5, God shouts at his people. The message version says, a full-throated shout, a trumpet blast shout. And the shout is, start loving the people around you. Stop exploiting your workers, stop quarreling, and stop being violent towards each other. Verse 3 and verse 4. And for me, there's two particular moments of disconnection. There's a moment of emotional disconnection and a moment of spiritual disconnection here. Jim Wallace, the leading evangelical, tells a story or points to the archaeological research which says that in, uh, in Cana, when archaeologists have looked at the size of the houses, they say there's houses at there's particular times in the timeline of the people of Israel when houses are roughly the same size, indicating that wealth is evenly distributed. And it's interesting that when you parallel that time with when what the, what's going on in the Bible, the prophets don't speak. But then there are times when there are vast houses and really small houses, indicating that wealth is really unevenly distributed. And that is the moment when Isaiah and Amos and all the other prophets speak, because it's saying that wealth is unequally distributed, and that is a spiritual sign of the kingdom not coming. And that is interesting for me because in June I was in a church in Uganda and I asked them a question. I'm going to ask you the same question this morning. How many people here, hands up, had three meals yesterday? Hands up. Pretty much everybody. My hand isn't up because most nights I have a sneaky bowl of crunchy nut cornflakes which probably puts me up to four. I asked that in a thatched church in eastern Uganda and not a single hand went up. I said, and many people here had two meals yesterday. And a couple of hands went up, but most people craned their necks around because they didn't believe or they weren't sure. They were surprised that other people had two meals. And I said, how many people here had one meal? And pretty much the whole church put their hand up, 250 people. These are people who were born hungry. These are the 870 million in the world that don't have enough to eat every day. And one of those people is Margaret. Great. We've caught up with herself. Well done, Alison. Margaret, I met the day before and she came to church. And her story was she'd literally, oh, mortgaged the farm. Great. Her husband had got sick. She had five kids. Her husband got sick. They had a plot of five acres. They'd mortgaged the farm. 
and the worst possible thing had happened to her because they mortgaged the farm to pay for his treatments. And the worst possible thing happened because he died and she lost the farm. And as she talked a little bit, she told the story of what it was like to live in her life. And there was two images that stayed in my head and will probably stay in my head forever. There was the image of my hedge and my shed. Because she said, we have one meal a day. And we said, what, what is that meal? And she said, a bit of bread and a bit of vegetable. And I asked, what is the vegetable that you eat? And she pointed at that plant. And I looked and I thought, her dinner has more in common with my hedge than it does with my dinner. And then she talked a wee bit of our house. And you can just see our house in the corner. It was eight by six, pretty much my, the size of my shed. And I don't think I'll ever forget her saying this. She said, there's not enough space for my children to lie down in my house. So every night after our dinner of eating the hedge, I walk them to somebody else's house and there they sleep. And I don't know about you, but there is something fundamentally wrong about that. The most basic human right should be that your kids sleep in the same house as you. This is a world of economic disconnection from God. But there's also something here about disconnection from God's loving purposes. In this passage, as Steve has already said, this is a passage where people are incredibly spiritual. Fasting, sackcloth and ashes, verse 5. These are people who are shining their shoes and putting on their Sunday best. But their spirituality isn't shaping how they are loving others. They're quarreling, they're fighting. By implication, they are not caring for the poor and the hungry and the hopeless. Tim Keller says that the key message of this passage is, if you think you've connected with God, but you don't care about the poor, then you haven't. The real index, this is the real index of the condition of your heart. Justice, he says, is the symptom of real faith. Justice is the symptom of real faith. If justice and care for the poor are the symptoms of real faith, then how would we rate ourselves? I know, as I've started, that this is a church on a journey. But it feels like a really interesting moment to take stock and to think, out of ten, how would I score myself? How would I score Fitzroy? I was telling Julie this morning that I was going to do this. And in all honesty, I said to her, I said, I kind of feel what I do in my job, I don't do too bad in an international sense. But the question for me is, who is it that I know that's poor locally? And what am I doing about them? I'm not even sure I know the name of someone who's struggling, who lives around me. And yet I know that there are thousands. If justice is the true index of faith, where, what does that say about us? And what does that say about our faith in God? And I guess that then takes us to the point of connection. I have loved thinking about this. And particularly I'd point you to verse 7. Because in verse 7, there's something that I missed several times. Verse 7 talks about care for the hungry, care for the naked, care for the homeless. And it says it finishes, and I missed it the first few times. 
don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. This verse is a verse which says not just what to do, as in we are to care, but it's why. We are to care because they, the poor, are our own flesh and blood. They are our family. We live, God is saying, we live in a world that is interconnected. Their well-being and my well-being are interconnected. This is God's shalom. Neil Plantigna, Plantigna, I knew I wouldn't say that properly, says that shalom is defined as the webbing together of God, humanity, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight. The webbing together of God, humanity, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight. And if you look through the Bible, this is a key thing, that in creation, God, humanity, and creation are all in harmony. If you look at Abraham's promise, God promises Abraham that he will flourish and through him the nations will flourish. If you look at Exodus, you see that God takes the people of Israel from their miserable lives as slaves in Egypt to an abundant new life in Canaan with God at the center. And here we see in Isaiah that the prophet is shouting that the world is not the way it should be, but that we're called to create a better world. And as a result, there are people who are hungry, naked, and who need shelter who we should care for. And what there for is the response to this. The response is verse 6. To loose the chains of injustice, to break the yoke of the oppressed. And that takes me to a really critical point. Because justice here, I think, is not the Western view of justice, which is standing up for our individual rights. We will take you to court. We will go to the Press Complaints Commission. That's not what this is. Justice here is living and speaking out for the well-being of all. It is bringing into birth God's kingdom itself, which is a kingdom of abundance and flourishing for everyone. And verse 7 outlines what that is. It means physically, day to day, feeding the hungry, the clothing the naked, and giving shelter. It means emotionally responding. Note, it says in verse 7, it's not just giving to those who are hungry. It's sharing your food. There is an expectation of emotional engagement. And it is mentally understanding the cultural, the economic, and the political factors which keep people poor, and working to change them. For example, it's making sure our staff and colleagues are treated well. It's making sure that we buy fair trade goods, as I know we do, so that we are not exploiting our workers. And it's working out how together we can challenge a global food system that means there's too much food for me, and there's not enough for people like markets. God's message here is change from being people who are solely spiritual to being people who bring your kingdom in its holistic sense. Tim Keller, I love this, Keller says, the message of this passage is take all that you are, your body, your money, your stuff, and plunge it into the lives of others. Take all that you are, your body, your stuff, your money, and plunge it into the lives of others. What would the world look like if we did that?
in June, I went and visited a few churches that I believe that are living out this story. And I met a guy who had benefited and who in turn his life had changed. And he was a guy called Sam. He's the one on the, your left-hand side. As you can see, he's disabled. He's also, interestingly, on World AIDS Day, HIV positive. And 10 years ago, he earned so little that he could feed his children two days a month. What must that be like? What it's like is, he said, he woke every day scared because he didn't know where the next meal was coming from. But the church in that area went through a process of Isaiah 58. They were solely spiritual and they were withering on the vine. But with a little bit of help from us, they began to work out how they could reach out. And so Sam was invited to this Bible study. And at the Bible study, he realized that he was a person of worth, that God loved him and he had value. And because of that, because of that mindset change in his life, that he was someone of value, not just someone disabled, HIV positive and poor, he realized, goodness, there are resources here that I can use that can begin to change my situation. So with a little bit of help from us, he began to use his carpentry skills, which he'd never really used before, and began to plant orange trees. Ten years on, I roll in, and there was something that was good, and there was something that was amazing. So the good was, he'd begun to flourish. He had this beautiful orange orchard, he was able to feed his children, granted two, two meals a day, but still much better. They were going to school. He was able to employ other folk, and they in turn were able to feed their children. There even was a little bit of capacity for him to support Godfrey in the blue t-shirt, who was a local orphan, and Sam was able to bring him through and give him an education and a bit of hope. That is a really good development story. But there was a moment just then, which I will never forget for the rest of my life he pulled out this certificate. And he said, I have been someone who's been experienced what it is to, be, to realize that I am loved. And I've begun to develop. And because of that, I want to help others. So, with our help, he set up his own charity. And what that is, this is a poor, semi-literate Ugandan farmer. That is a government certificate registering his charity. And his charity helps 62 other people who are HIV positive, providing them with care and support. They have a little loan scheme, they have a little support program, so whenever they have health problems, they're able to help each other. And those 62 other folk have so benefited from Sam's charity, guess what they're doing? They are raising awareness about HIV in the churches in that wider area, helping people to take steps to reduce the risk of HIV in the future. In Sam's story, I got something of what Shalom looks like. Because in Sam's story, there is something of what loosening the chains of injustice looks like. This is a webbing together. His story is a webbing together of God, humanity, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight. Because physically, he can feed his children. Emotionally, he's the dignity of running his own business. Economically, he's improving the income of himself and others. Environmentally, he's planting trees. Culturally, he's challenging HIV discrimination. And spiritually, he knows that he is someone who is loved. And he is, in turn, enabling others to understand that for themselves.
That is what I believe shalom is. And in that area, we are funding 90 churches who are doing the same thing with 9,000 other people. In fact, we reckon that each of those 9,000 people will support another nine people, either through their families or through the businesses they set up. So those 90 churches are actually helping, we estimate, 81,000 people to work their way out of poverty. And because we are enabling the church themselves, who are already there, we're not sending people in, and because we're enabling people like Sam to use his own resources, it's only costing us £14 to help people to go through this interactive study, helping people to understand what shalom and flourishing is, and to understand that they are loved and to enable them to use their own resources. While I was there, I met a pastor who had started to use his unused land. And as a result, he was flourishing and his churches had gone from five churches to 11. I met a man who had stopped drinking and was now able to invest in a farm and in a family life. And I met scores of people like Margaret, who I started at the stop, who'd come to faith and had gone on a journey where their lives had begun to understand a little bit of what blessing was. That, for me, there in Uganda, I saw a little bit of what flourishing looks like. And I guess for us, that is what our vision is. A hundred thousand churches like Sam's. And over the last five years, we have helped 67,000 churches to go on what we call an envisioning process understanding that the role of the church is more than simply the spiritual, like in this passage, but they have a holistic vision to transform the world around them. And from those 67,000 churches, we have enabled 15 million people to take positive long-term steps like Sam to start to live that out in their communities. Picking up some of the examples from the film from folk who saw it, in, the, in Uganda, in the Diocese of Kigezi, we are helping uh, churches to help 25,000 people to access clean water, them to be flourishing communities and churches that are flourishing. In Nepal, one project is helping local churches to help 800 former bonded laborers to establish small businesses for themselves, developing them and enabling them to flourish holistically. And we have projects in India which are rescuing and supporting hundreds of women and girls from the sex trade and giving them hope and a future. And as well as working on the grounds, practically listening to the chains of injustice, we also reckon over the last five years we have helped a hundred policies to change nationally and, and locally. So for example, we had a hundred thousand people wrote to the UK government saying, you need to invest more in water. As you've seen in the film, you've seen how crucial that is. And as a result of the change that's happened, by 2015, we reckon 5.3 million people more will have access to clean water. So what does that mean? Where does that take us? Disconnection, connection, and finally, transformation. Here is the amazing end of the passage. Because it says that by connecting with God and the poor, not only will they be changed, but we will. Our light will rise in the darkness, verse 10. We'll be like a well-watered garden, verse 11. 
And I guess for me, as I was thinking about what that looked like, I thought to myself, there's two stories that resonate in my head. One was, and I didn't get it at the time, but as we drove away from Sam's, the guy who was with me said, he actually only gives his children two meals a day. He's only able to afford his children to give his children two meals a day. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have set up a charity for 63 other people if my children weren't getting three meals a day and I felt I wasn't flourishing. But he said that he'd been so blessed by what had happened already, he knew that he wanted others to help. And in that moment, Sam changed from me, from being a victim, a survivor, a label, as someone who was HIV positive, to being a giant, to being an extraordinary disciple of someone who is living out sacrificially how to love God, love others, and love ourselves. There was a moment for me where Sam's light had risen in the darkness. Or it makes me think of Kareth Church in London. Now, granted, it's a big church, but over the last five years, they have raised £500,000 for a project in Zambia. And with that money, they have enabled local churches to reach out into their communities. They have enabled 3,000 orphans and vulnerable children, many of whom whose parents will have died from HIV, to go to school. They have enabled 1,000 families to become better farmers. And they have trained 117 volunteers to support thousands of people living with HIV and AIDS. They have enabled the church and the wider community to flourish. And what's been really interesting about Kareth is that not just has Kareth helped to transform communities globally, but actually it's helped to transform them. So over the process, or as part of the process, they've partnered with three local schools, fostering brilliant relationships while fundraising with the project. It has led to members taking amazing steps in their own journey. One couple ended up moving to Zimbabwe or to Zambia themselves so that they could be part of the story of change of what they saw that was happening in the Zambian church. So what does that mean for us? I want to finish with three simple steps. The whole point of this passage is that God is talking to his people and they weren't really listening. And it seems to me that a critical component of what we are called to do is to listen to what God is saying. And as Steve has been saying, some of you have been using our brilliant little prayer journal, which we've written to help us explore, to help people explore the theme of shalom. It's prayerful, it prayerfully explores the biblical themes of justice and fullness and hope to find out how we can live out the lives that God is calling you to. It's not a guilt trip. It's genuinely a way to help us to create some space for God to speak to us. If you've got one, I'd love to hear how it's connected with you. And if you haven't, then please pick one over there. Pick one up over there. Or if, like me, you're kind of halfway through, join with me to finish it. It seems to me today is the 1st of December. Today is the story of Advent. There's an amazing opportunity to read it for 30 days in the run-up to the new year to ask God what could next year look like for us. If you've got a diary, all we ask is you give us your information, the little forms that are in the pews, 
and this will allow us simply every so often to send you a little bit of information so you can continue to be inspired by what's happening and pray for what we do. So one step is to pray with us. A second step is an amazing, possibly a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to speak out about the issue of hunger. Many of you will know that the G8 Summit is in Enniskillen in June. What you might know is behind the scenes, there is a massive, monumental, make-poverty-history-style campaign building saying to global leaders, the G8, Britain's chairing the G8, and to the Irish government, because they are chairing the EU in April, we have got to get a grip of this issue of hunger. 870 million people like Margaret, we can't go on the way we are. There is a UK, and we are hoping it will be a global campaign which is going to focus on Enniskillen in June. How could we grab hold of that opportunity in Northern Ireland? Because it seems to me to be a once in a lifetime. Steve and I have already been talking about the possibility here in Fitzroy about doing an event or an evening, maybe in March. But it seems to me as I look around this morning, there is lots of really influential people here with opportunities to take that campaign into the places where you are, at work, at school, at university, and both to inspire people to get involved, but also to connect a little bit of faith with them in a way that engages with them. Next year, why don't you think about making it a year, about speaking out about hunger? And finally, by partnering with us, somewhere, somebody prayed. They heard a talk just like this, and they prayed, and they gave a bit of money. Probably, we estimate, 14 pounds. And God moved, and Sam's life changed. And so did the lives of all the other people that are engaging with him. And more than anything else, what we would love you to do is to partner with us for the long term. It might be that as a church down the road, you decide and think, maybe we could, like Kareth, connect with a church or a group of churches in somewhere like Zambia, in which case we would love to do that in a way which is both beneficial to them and beneficial to you. That's maybe something for you to think about. But now for today, I would really encourage you to think about connecting and partnering with us individually. For us, it's a best for our beneficiaries. Seven pounds a month can help six people like Sam to go through a program like the one I've described to work their way out of poverty. For us, it's best because it helps us regularly or it helps us to plan for the long term and it costs us an absolute fraction if you give on a regular basis. And if you, follow, if you do that, you can follow a community just like Sam through regular emails and films and get to see the difference that they're making. And if Fitzroy becomes a connected church in the future, you could switch your regular gifts so it connects into what you can follow the community that Fitzroy follow. If you would like to do that, if you're interested, simply tick the little box and give us your information in the, on the sheet. And someone like me will give you a call and chat to you about what works for you. I want to start, or I want to finish where I started. The story of Live 58 is a story of a world where children and families don't have the dreams that they should but it's a story 
of a world that can change, where extreme poverty is declining. It is within reach that we could end this in our lifetime. The challenge for us is can we align our hearts with God, feel what he feels, and use our resources to advance his purposes? If we do, I believe we have the opportunity to live out that call of shalom, that webbing together of God, humanity, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight. And if we do, we'll be people who, like Keller, are taking the threads of life, our body, our money, our stuff, and plunging it into the lives of others. What would the world look like if we all lived like that? May God bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Amen.